This morning's readings, there are two from Genesis as we continue our sermon series. 21, chapter 21, verses 1 to 21, and that's on page 19 of the Bible. And then we go to Genesis 22, 1 to 19 on page 20. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking, and she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. Turning now to 22, beginning at verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son, Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. 
Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide and to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. My name is Parash. I'm the Senior Minister. A very warm welcome if you're new or visiting. Good to see our regulars here. Let me pray for us before we reflect uh, on that portion of the Bible. Kind Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, uh, you would speak to our hearts and minds this morning, showing us the Lord Jesus Christ and making us more like him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Modern spirituality, I would say, is um, a spirituality that is focused mainly on the person rather than on God. I think this is, a, this is a, a change that has taken place in the course of time and you see it actually in the uptake. People are very spiritual, I think it's very true still for our, our, um, our society, but I think spirituality is focused on the individual more so than on some kind of like external powerful being. Uh, you see this in the uptake of um, kind of... Uh, well, particularly Buddhism and, and kind of that New Age spirituality as well that's picked up. You might have, for example, uh, heard people acclaim someone as a person of faith, a, a person who's got faith. You might. And, and what really I think that reflects is a view that what is most commendable about a person is the inner capability to have faith more so than even the, ability, the, the person who you have faith in. In our society, it raises a question of whether we really still need God. Because 
what is most commendable about a person is that they are someone who can have faith, not so much what or whom they have faith in, being a person of faith. Now, this is relevant to us because we, uh, we come to Genesis and the passages we've been reading and what emerges are these great characters in the, the account of Genesis. We've been looking at Abraham. We call him the father of nations. These are extraordinary figures in Old Testament literature who really kind of arise out of the pages of the Bible and we're struck by them. And we, I mean, we are rightly encouraged to see even Abraham as a, as a hero of faith from Hebrews 11. These characters really emerge. They, get, they uh, grab our attention. If you've been reading along Genesis along with us during the week, in each of the weekly readings that you find in the booklet, you'd have come across other characters like Lot, for example, um, Abimelech, a king, and we're going to come to further characters like Laban, uh, jo- Joseph, Jacob, Esau, all of these extraordinary characters. This is what this part of Genesis is, is characterised by, is, is having um, these extraordinary characters. And so that, that kind of resonates with us. We think, oh, this is a person I want to be like, yeah? a person of faith, especially Abraham, who is acclaimed as the father of faith. He's the start of the great honour roll in Hebrews. But what we can be at risk of doing is losing the central point of Genesis, which is, do we still need a God? Yes. In fact, it is God who's doing everything. It's God who's doing everything in this story. And don't be blinded by the characters who we meet In Genesis 21, the first chapter that Bob read for us, it opens with this. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. And you see Moses, who we're pretty sure wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Old Testament, Moses says here, he attributes the main character here, not to Sarah or to Abraham, but to God. And what's happening is Sarah has become pregnant at a very old age. If we read back in Genesis 17 and do the math, she's 90 now when this happens. She's 90. And, so, and she gives birth to a child. She's never had a child before. God has promised that she would she would, in fact, she and Abraham would be parents of, of the generations to come of God's people, but nothing's eventuated for nearly 70 years since the first of those promises. But now it has happened, and Moses is clear, it's what God has promised, and he has done it, and what's more, he's done it in old age. And the point of this is God is necessary because God is the only one who does what people cannot. The story of Genesis is, is a constant story. In fact, the story of the Bible is a constant story of God doing what people cannot. To the point that when you get to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul will pray and encourage us to pray to a God who can do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. Here is the starting point. And here is the point of the Bible, actually, to introduce us to God who can do more than we can ask or imagine not to be blinded by these characters, but in a sense to be blinded by God, for the, for the enormity of God to shine through in Scripture. 
Do we need God? The, the strong and clear reminder of Scripture to us is yes, He's the hero. He's the only one, actually, who can do what is necessary. And He can do what, what we would imagine is impossible. I mean, Sarah is 90. She lives in a time when having a child, even when you were 20, was a death sentence for many people. She's 90. Imagine bearing a child, then giving birth to a child when you're 90. And that's exactly what happens in this moment. And this is not just a, this is not a fairy tale. This is something that Jesus picks up later in the New Testament. This is what the Jewish religion is built on, this, this moment, this extraordinary resolution of a promise given to Abraham and Sarah. And so it's at the heart of who God is. But then the question, of course, with the story of Abraham is what does it mean to be someone who has faith in God, in this God? What is it to be a person of faith, a true person of faith? What does it look like for me to trust God? And Abraham is in part useful for answering that question. He does help us, and that's why you know, the writer of the Hebrews includes him in this great list of examples of faith. And so I just want to spend a little bit of time thinking about that. There's three things, I think, that this account of Abraham and Isaac in chapter 22 teaches us about what it means to have biblical faith, to really trust the God of the Bible. Um, I've put two of them, actually, in the booklet, but I've added a third one, and it's the third one I want to start with. The, fir- the, the first thing about what it means to have faith in, in, the, in the context of the Bible is it is to respond to what God has already said to us. Faith starts with God speaking to us. Faith is a response to his word. And so in Genesis 22 verse 1, this is the start of this infamous and extraordinary chapter in Genesis. It starts, sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, he said to him, the act of faith starts first with God speaking to us. This is very important. We, we cannot exercise faith until God has spoken to us. And it's not just true in this story, because earlier in Gen- like Genesis 12, the start of Abraham's life starts what? Not with a decision by Abraham, but by God addressing Abraham. The Lord had said to Abraham, and this is the ongoing dynamic of the Bible. You can't have faith unless God has spoken to you. And for us as New Testament Christians, the fullness of this story is that we meet God in the Scriptures, in the Bible. It is in the words of the Bible that we hear God speaking to us on a daily, consistent basis. And so actually to have faith is to respond to that word in the Scriptures. God speaks to us in his word. The writer of the Hebrews in the first chapter starts with this definitive statement. He's spoken to us in his word, the Lord Jesus, and we meet Jesus in the pages of the Bible, in the promises of the Scriptures. So our faith is always a response to God speaking to us. And that means we need God to speak to us. We need to be in a position to hear him speak to us. If God speaks in his word, we need to be in places where we hear his word. I put together this diagram. I think these are, and this is not actually unique to St. Stephen's, this is just the unique, this is just a common pattern um, for God's people, but certainly in this time and place, but through the ages as well. We meet God in our own reading of the Scriptures. This is why the Reformers fought so hard for, 
for individuals to be able to read the Bible in their own language. This is why a guy like William Tyndale eventually gave his life on the funeral pyre in order that English men and women could read the Bible in their own language. It's something we take for granted now. But this is, this is an extraordinary gift to be able to open the Scriptures, to read it in a language that you understand, not just in English, of course. We have many in, in institutions like Wycliffe, for example, where the Costons and David Blackman are um, missionaries with who translate the Bible into native languages. But having the Bible and reading it is where you meet God, and so therefore your personal reading of Scripture is crucial to this. Meeting with God's people here on a Sunday. I mean, obviously you're here, so that's good. Uh, That is where you hear the Word. Opened, read, we were just saying in our meeting, it is such a privilege to have the Bible read to us. That's why we say, this is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's not just a a tradition that we're going through because we're Anglican. We say it because we remind ourselves, God has spoken to us this moment. And in our midweek groups, we call them gap groups here at St. Stephen's, one of the things that's at the centre of those, those moments is the Word of God. It's what differentiates it from, from your, your, you know, your, your mother's group that meets. The centre of that is your children. But at the centre of this group is the Word of God. And I've, the diagram for me is deliberate because, of course, things get, there, is, there is more depth, there's, there's, there's an overlap there. And the place you really want to be is right in the centre of those things. And as I, just, I just digress because I want, to, I want to just take this moment to reinforce the value of all of those things. They're worth being in. And what I'd say is, I'd drive it even further. I'd say, if you want to be a Christian, you need to hear God speak. You can't be faithful just on your own. I mean, you, you can in a secular, like a, a worldly sense. People talk about faith all the time as something that's just internally generated. I trust in myself. You, I have a sense of what's right, and so I'm going to live in line with that. Sure. But to be a Christian, you need to have faith in, the, in response to what God has said to you. Because that is how faith is exercised, in response to hearing God speak to you. So if you're not hearing the Bible, it's really very hard for you to live by faith, to exercise biblical faith. If you're not in a position where you're hearing the Scriptures, you're not going to grow. This is why myself, of course, but your ministers in churches you've been in in the past keep emphasising these things because they understand that the core of Christian faith is a response to the Word of God spoken to us. It always starts with a response. So the first thing is, Faith, as we see in the story of Abraham and carried through the Bible, is a response to God speaking to us. The second thing is that faith in the Bible is generally something that's exercised in the context of difficulty and pain and hardship. It actually costs you something. It costs you something. And we see this in the story that to trust God for Abraham in this story, in Genesis 22, is painful and confusing. And that's a deliberate decision by Moses as he retells this story. Because he could have told this story, God said to Abraham, go to Moriah and offer your son as a sacrifice. And so Abraham went, and just before he was about to offer him, God intervened. That 
that would be a legitimate retelling of the events. It would be shortened. But Moses does, does something different. He actually drags the whole thing out for us. So that you almost feel, if it's the first time, you feel shocked. If, it, if you've read the story before and you're re-encountering it, maybe this morning, you feel slightly emotionally drained, if, especially if you are a parent um, or you have, a, you know, you have a, a niece or a nephew who you're close to, you, you can't help but kind of overlay them into the story and grapple with it. He says, take your son, your only son, not just your son, your only son, whom you love. And in case Moses, in case Isaac, Abraham is in any doubt, it's Isaac. And go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there. I mean, imagine that. Imagine that. Receiving that. He's just sent Ishmael off. This is it. And so they journey. And then there's this, there's this, little, this little aside. On the third day, Abraham looks up and saw the place in the distance that, that God wants them to go. The third day. That means they journeyed for three days with this hanging over them. To be obedient to this means he doesn't just do it and then a couple of hours later he comes to the, to the, the crucial moment to exercise faith. It's something that's dragged out. He has, he has meals and he thinks, this could be the last meal, this could be the last conversation with my son. Faith is dragged out at times. There's not an easy... We want, we, want the sort of, we want the answer now, right? But often the experience of faith in the Christian life, in accord with the Christian scriptures, is it's this experience that's, that's painful and it doesn't resolve easily. And then having left the two servants with the donkey, we're told the two of them go on together. They're kind of bound in this task. This last kind of final terrible walk up the mountain carrying on his back the own his own kind of sacrificial pyre the wood on which he's to be killed and isaac says to his father father abraham says yes my son in fact in in the hebrew the original language it's my father my son this is Abraham is not that like stoic, distant father who has nothing to do with his son. There is a deep intimacy here. And it's deliberate because this is costly. It's painful. It's horrific. It's, it's horrific. But Isaac is probably 13 now in this story. I know Pip's um, spotlight had a little baby. He wasn't a baby. He would have been about 13. Abraham is 100. If Isaac doesn't want to do it, he can overcome his father at this point in time. But he just, he keeps going. He knows, he feels like something horrific lies in store for him. There is, there are not, his father's answer, he doesn't clarify everything for him. And they get there and they reach the place and Abraham builds this altar. He lifts each boulder onto it. He sweats, he grazes his hands he arranges the wood. He gathers splinters in his fingers. 
And then he binds his son and lays him on the altar on top of the wood, reaches his hand out, looks at the knife, grabs it. This is a horrific moment. There's just no other way to describe it. It's terrible. It's painful. And it's not just, it's confusing, but it's not just confusing because this is Isaac who I love. Why would God make me do this? It's Isaac who is the embodiment of God's promises. 70 years Abraham has waited for God to fulfill the promises he made to him. And here it is. He seems like he's done exactly that in this boy. And now God is saying, is he saying, I've given up on my promise? What I said I would do to you, I wouldn't? It's painful and it's confusing. And what we learn is that sometimes that's what it looks like to live by faith in the Bible. Is to live in these drawn out, painful, confusing moments. When we think about faith, let's be honest, even as Christians, we think about faith like this. We, we reason it and then we do it. You might say to yourself, I want to be really generous. I want to do something outrageous. So you go to your bank account and you do your maths and you work out what you can and can't afford and then you do something. But when you look at this story and what it is, it reflects a faith which is not based on reason. It's not founded and motivated by a rationalising of circumstances. Primarily, it's a decision to go and do it. In spite of the circumstances and the confusion and the uncertainty of it. And I, I just want to be upfront. If you're someone who's thinking about being a Christian, being a Christian involves this kind of faith. It involves taking these steps which are painful and difficult. And if someone just says to you that to become a Christian, everything just becomes easy, they are wrong. They're wrong. Just, I was just at home with a parishioner who's grappling with the most difficult season ever in their life. There is no answer. There is no reason. It, you, you, they're, not, they're not doing this because they can't find a reason. They just have to go the other way. But that's what it looks like. And that's, that's what this story is mapping out for you. Faith is born and exercised in great seasons of difficulty. That's what it looks like to be a person of faith according to the scriptures. The third thing is, it is someone who avoids the central mistake. See, Abraham, the thing in the end that really is laudable about Abraham is this. God says, you know, this is, why, this is what God was testing. He wanted to see if Abraham would make the, the mistake that we all make or whether he could, he, could, he could approach God the right way. And so he says, now I know. Because, of course, God intervenes. Just as Abraham is about to kill Isaac, he intervenes. He says, stop, don't touch the boy. And he says, now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Again, the language is so deliberate. You have not withheld from me. See, Abraham looks at Isaac and he sees the one whom he loves, this beautiful gift from God, but also the, the, the embodiment of all God's promises. And he chooses God over all those things. 
He chooses the giver over the gift. He chooses the promise maker over the promise itself. See, God is asking Abraham, do you love me? Do you trust me more than you trust in the promises? And for a lot of us, you know, we live our life, our Christian life, actually just looking at the promises, not the promise giver. And Abraham's story is hard for us because the central love of our life must be God himself, not all those other things. Now, God is not going to ask you to sacrifice your son or daughter. He's not. He's not for many reasons. First of all, because he doesn't end up asking Abraham to do that in this story. That's part of the story you should never lose. He's also not going to do it because a few chapters later in Deuteronomy, he specifically outlaws child sacrifice. He says it's detestable to him. God was never going to ask Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Like He was never going to actually take him to that point. He was just testing him and saying, what do you love more? Do you love Isaac and all that he embodies or do you love me more? And that's where he's going to ask you. He's going to ask you about things in your life that he's given you and he's going to ask you, do you love them more than you love him? Do you love the ambitions you have for yourself or for your children? Let's be honest as parents. We sell off the ambition we have for our children as something laudable which we can prioritise over the Lord. But will you withhold those things from the Lord? Or your success? Or your reputation? We talked about this on Wednesday if you were at our evangelism training night which is fantastic. Just the real challenge about sharing our faith might be that moment when we, we can't withhold even our reputation. God is asking you, and he will ask you, and this is the, this is the moment where exercising faith is, is challenged. Will you withhold this thing that you love most from the Lord? Will you withhold this thing most? Now... <laughs> You look at the story of Abraham and Isaac, and for many people, they think, why would I trust a God like that who asked me to do that? Why would I follow God? And in the story, there's, there's, there's a kind of an answer to that, actually. There's a, there, you look at Abraham and you see the thing that grounds him is a deep belief that God will provide what is necessary. So he actually says earlier, this is before they get to the mountain and they... And he has to bind Isaac. He says to Isaac in response to his questions, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. It's, it's pregnant with meaning, this verse. But uh, in Abraham's context, he's just saying, I just trust that God will provide. I just have this deep trust that God will provide. I don't have the answers for it, my son, but he will provide this. And for Abraham, that's what carries him through this moment. And gets him to the mountain and, and gets him to that crucial moment in, chapter, in verse 10. God will provide. But I think if you're like me, you just, you're, if you're really honest, you think, I couldn't do what Abraham's doing. You think, I, I just can't bring myself to do what Abraham's doing here. I'm, I'm not sure if I'd have that within me to go all that way and to walk all those steps. 
And I think what I want to say is that the point of the story of Abraham is not a roadmap to faith primarily. This is not, chapter 22 is not, walk these steps and this will make you a Christian. It can't be because Abraham is not as good as chapter 22 makes him out to be. That's why there's chapter 21 in our reading. The story of Ishmael, who we included, Ishmael is a testament that sometimes Abraham is not willing to do this. He's not willing to trust God. He doesn't always believe that God himself will provide. I mean, he says it extraordinarily here, but Ishmael is the story of Abraham and Sarah conspiring together and then having Abraham sleep with his maidservant so that he might have an offspring. You know, he, 10 years, 12 years before Isaac is born, Abraham gets sick and tired of God's promise not being fulfilled, and so he goes and sleeps with Hagar in order to bear a child. And the great tragedy of it is what then takes place over the intervening years, which keeps running through his family, so that even when Isaac is born, there is this conflict. And Ishmael is eventually, tragically, sent off into the desert only to be looked after by God himself. Abraham is no model to follow when it comes to the story of Ishmael. And and the startling story of Genesis is constantly, here is what it looks like to follow God, but unfortunately, none of us can do this. None of us can meet this. I mean, we have these moments when we flash out in great moments of faithfulness, but we have an Ishmael moment lurking in our background. See, the point of Genesis 22 and Abraham's walk up the mountain is much more profound than that. God is doing something in this moment and in the retelling of this moment, which is much more than just a a roadmap for how you can please him, he is laying down a marker for what it will look like for him to love you. See, this story is there and all of its pathos and all of its horror is there to prepare you for another moment in the great story when, of course, God, God the Son... His one and only son will one early morning rise himself, will go up a mountain, will bear the wood on his back on which he himself will be pierced. And there will be no ram, there will be no lamb, because he, of course, as John the Baptist says at the start, is the Lamb of God. And when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane before that fateful moment, and he says, Not my will, but yours, Father. He's saying, Father, take your knife and pierce my heart with your judgment. Do it for the sake of your people. Richard Dawkins says, this is the most, he finds chapter 22 of Genesis the most, just the most inhumane, terrible piece of literature. It's it's basically one of the main reasons why he rejects Christianity. He thinks, here is a God who is sadistic, who um, would leave this family mentally scarred forever. The thing that Dawkins doesn't understand is that this is not just a great piece of retelling. This is not just a fascinating story. This is a story that is given to us for a very significant purpose. 
so that we might gaze upon it and see something very profound about who God is and what he is willing to endure and go through for you. I want you to imagine you're a, um, imagine there's a young, a young woman, she's a 20-something, she's self-righteous about everything, she turns on the TV, there's a documentary about the war, she says, ah, oh, see, this is the barbarity of previous generations. You know, she watches the, the American soldiers killing, being killed. She says, you know, this is the problem. Why don't people just live in peace with one another? She's, she doesn't know anything about the war, right? She's just watching this thing. But then as the story kind of keeps, keeps rolling on, she sees that they, they take this battalion all the way through to them getting to Auschwitz. And suddenly her perspective starts to change. She thinks, mm, maybe, maybe there was something worthwhile about all of this, this horror and pain and suffering. Right? The pain has become purposive and maybe even redemptive, right? But then something even more extraordinary happens. They have an interview with a survivor of Auschwitz. It's her grandmother. She thinks, oh, we've never talked about this. I didn't know this. And there her mother, her grandmother's being interviewed about the horrors of concentration camp and the relief of being liberated. Her life is just like transformed in a moment. Because what seemed like this meaningless, arbitrary exercise of violence is not only purposive and not only redemptive, but is personally transformative. It means something to her. She's not here but for this moment. And the gospel is like that. It's, of course, it's horrific than an innocent man would die on a cross. But in the horror, it is God testifying to his deep, unlimited love for you. And when you start to see, this is for you, this is for you, my friends, you start to see the story of Abraham is not about what you should do. It is the start of a story about what God has done for you. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would pour that unlimited love you have for us into our hearts afresh. Heavenly Father, the horror that you and your Son endured that day to bear our sin on the cross, what love is this? Lord God, pour that love into our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.